Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless you guard the city, the watchmen guard it in vain. And it's so true that unless you preach the sermon, uh, I will preach in vain. And unless you are the one who enables my brothers and sisters to worship and to understand Uh, the implications of your word for their lives, uh, they will listen to this sermon in vain. And I pray that that would not be uh, what happens. I ask, uh, Father, that you will come now and bring honor to your son as the great bridegroom of his people, the lover of his people. And we pray that uh, for those already in Christ, that you would grant a sacred encounter Uh, between their Savior and themselves this morning as we worship him over his word. And for those not yet in Christ, we pray for the gift of salvation to be bestowed this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want you to think with me about caterpillars for a minute. Caterpillars are very interesting. They're very, they're not all the same. Some of them are very beautiful. Some of them are not. But even the most beautiful caterpillars 
none of them is as beautiful as the butterfly that they are going to become. Every caterpillar is designed by God for a non-caterpillar future. No caterpillar is intended ever to be an end in itself. And if you want to know the value or the importance of the caterpillar, you must work backwards from the butterfly it is designed to become. Friends, we have to keep our eye on the butterfly. Now, regardless of where you find yourself this morning on the marriage spectrum, regardless of whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you have been divorced, or whether you are a widow or a widower, regardless of where you are, friends, I want you to know this. You must keep your eye on the butterfly. There is only one marriage created to last forever. And every one of those possible life situations, married, single, divorced, widowed, each one is a caterpillar. And by God's design, they are being shaped into that, their, their, prep, their preparation, regardless of which ones of those you're in, they are preparation for the butterfly of Christ's marriage to his church. Friends, what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 26 about uh, a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven applies equally to each of us, regardless of which one of those stations we find ourselves in this morning. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible to be married to the glory of God if man is left to himself. With man, it is impossible to steward singleness to the glory of God with joy in the Lord. If man is left to himself, it is impossible to survive and even thrive in the wake of divorce. If man is just left to himself, it is impossible to survive the death of your spouse. But with God, friends, all things are possible. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to reflect together on on three themes uh, related to marriage that emerge from our Lord's exchanges with the Pharisees and his disciples in this passage. And uh, we're going to look at three this morning. We're going to continue this next week. But but I wanted to lay the foundation this morning. Friends, some of you are thinking, I don't want to listen to sermons on marriage. You know, if you're thinking that, you are exactly the person who does. If you're thinking about checking out over the next couple of weeks because we're going to be thinking about marriage and either it's too painful, whatever, friends, I guarantee you that that is exactly the reason you need to check in. 
Okay, so I just want to, this is very urgent. This, this, these messages are not about a certain demographic slice of this congregation to the exclusion of everyone else. Whether you're young or you're old, these messages are about 100% of us. And so these themes that we're going to see from this passage, which are so much, it, we, we need these in the church because our culture has just chopped every single one of these. We need these. And this morning, the first three we're going to look at is that, that Jesus teaches us. First, Jesus teaches us reverence for marriage. Secondly, he teaches us about providence and marriage. And third, he teaches us about forgiveness in marriage. First, reverence for marriage. And that's the first thing that Jesus teaches us about marriage is reverence for marriage. And our passage depicts a head-on collision that should be very familiar to us from uh, our experience in our culture these days. It's a, it's a head-on collision between man's low view of marriage and God's extremely high view of marriage. Look at how Jesus reveres marriage. Look at how carefully he takes marriage. And young people, you're here saying, well, I'm not married, and maybe one day it's going to be this distant thing. Maybe it's going to happen in the distant future. How are you ever going to get ready for marriage, my young friend, unless you grasp and are gripped from the very earliest season in your life at how serious marriage is in God's eyes. And look at how seriously Jesus takes marriage. The Pharisees come to him with a question. Uh, uh, They come from a perspective of marriage that's easy come, easy go, right? Can, Can a man... Uh, divorce. Is it lawful? Look at verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Easy come, easy go. And Jesus doesn't let that pass. Right? He is the guardian of marriage. He is guarding the significance of marriage. And he, the, the marriage changers come to Jesus Christ and he just turns their tables over. And he says something absolutely staggering. And he does it in two parts. He does it by referring first to the first marriage of Adam and Eve, and then he he does it by explaining what's true of every marriage. So his answer is uh, stunning. So you look at the first part of his answer in verses 4 and 5, and he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. His answer is, have you not read your Bible? I mean, I don't even have to take you into Ezekiel. I'm talking Genesis, first book, and not even deep into Genesis. I'm talking first page. God created the male and female. Male and female. Jesus reveres marriage because it is God's creation. It's not some social contract or social evolution that cultures develop in order to preserve their stable operation. Don't listen to that. Jesus is saying that marriage is God's creation. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning... Remember, he's talking to Bible experts. He's talking to Pharisees who read their Bible. And he's saying, you don't understand your Bible. You You can't understand what marriage is unless you go back to creation. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so right now, you automatically know that everything that our culture says about same-sex marriage is totally wrong. I saw there was something in the news this week. There's something going on in Seattle. Uh, There was a protest related to gay rights. And in the background, one of the pictures on the web, there was a picture that said, uh, Jesus on gay marriage. And then there were two quotation marks, and there was nothing between the quotation marks, implying, of course, that Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. What? Don't let them do that to you. Read your Bible. Jesus, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, verse 5, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What he does is he quotes Genesis 2.24 there. Now, most often people assume that that is Moses' aside his commentary to his audience when he's writing Genesis. But Jesus is saying, that's God who's speaking those words. It's God who's created marriage. God reveres marriage. God made it. God is the inventor of marriage. According to Jesus, he's the one who makes marriage, and therefore God is its only rightful interpreter. What is the meaning of marriage? What is it? A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He is both its inventor and therefore, by extension, God is also its interpreter, and Jesus reveres marriage because of that. God owns marriage. He makes marriage, and he makes the meaning of marriage. Marriage is not, therefore, a human invention, and its, and its meaning is not left up to human interpretation. We must fear and tremble before God's authority over marriage. That's what Jesus is saying. And the second thing he does, now that's just Adam and Eve's marriage, and that's before the fall. And so you say, well, well does that have any application after the fall? I mean, even that marriage was corrupt. Right? Corrupted by sin. So could that possibly, that huge vision that God made this marriage, that they they were one flesh, one flesh union, of course that makes sense before the fall, but after the fall, please. But notice how Jesus uh, carries that on. He reasons from the first marriage to every marriage in verse 6. So, they... He's not talking about Adam and Eve anymore. He's talking about every husband and wife. So they are no longer, they are, not were, they are, no longer two, but one flesh. And then this amazing statement about marriage that we'll get into more under the, our second heading. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see what Jesus is doing is he is saying, He's teaching us reverence, not just for Adam and Eve's marriage, not just for the creation of marriage, but for every marriage. And he's not done. Because when the disciples hear Jesus describe marriage the way he describes it, do you see their response in verse 10? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. This is too important. This is too dangerous. We're going to mess this up. Okay? 
I love the disciples. I love the disciples. So human. I mean, isn't that exactly what you would say if you heard Jesus say that? That's what I would say. It's just so psychologically realistic. The Bible is so true to human nature. So authentic. And you know what Jesus' response is? He ups the ante even more. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. Actually, you're overreacting to what I said. Marriage actually isn't as important as, as you think I just said. He holds his ground. He says, listen, you're not going to be able to receive this unless it has been given to you. Look at verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then look at the end of verse 12. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. You know what he's doing? He's saying that marriage ultimately is not only, not only is, is it is it invented by God, created by God, interpreted by God, so that God's its inventor, God's its interpreter, but he's also saying that marriage ultimately, ultimately needs to be understood as entered into by the calling of God, so that God is actually its initiator. And my young friends, may I just urge you to think that way about marriage, that you not simply let the current of Uh, demographics or the current of culture or the way you look at your age relative to your peers to don't let those things be what determines for your heart whether or not you should be married but would you please I plead with you seek whether God is calling you into marriage because unless he is there is no way that you can possibly stay married such an important thing Don't assume that God has called you into marriage. God is its initiator. Now, this raises a very important... And by the way, we'll look at this in the coming weeks. If Jesus is correct that marriage is rightly understood as nothing less than a divine calling, then that means that God and not men set the terms, sets the terms and the conditions upon both its entrance and its exit. And that raises a very important pastoral question. That's to, who is Jesus teaching to be reverent about marriage here? What percentage of the population is he seeking to teach uh, reverence about marriage to? Is it just the Pharisees who presumably are coming to him already married? Is he just trying to reach those who are married and say, you know, say, I need to open your eyes to what you already have and its significance? Not at all. What Jesus is trying to do is reach 100% of the population. 100% of the married and 100% of the unmarried. Let me show you what I mean. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, which is on page in your pew Bibles, it's on page 1009. And if you're sitting, Emmanuel folks, if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't have a Bible or doesn't seem to know where Hebrews is, and there are a lot of people who don't know where Hebrews is, that is not a crime. Help them. Look at verse 4. Hebrews 13 is the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, and what happens after this massive explanation of the gospel that goes on and on so gloriously for 12 chapters. In chapter 13, then, the, the writer just strings together all these implications of the gospel, and one of them is in verse 4, related to marriage. Now, notice what he says. It's very interesting. He says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral 
and adulterous, fornicators and ad- adultery, right? So, so sex, two ways. There's two ways to violate the sexual boundaries that God has ordained for marriage, a fornication and adultery. Now notice, uh, notice something here. Right, there are two commands here, not one. The first command is, let marriage be held in honor among all. That's the first command. And notice, it's, it's, it sweeps in 100% of people. Among all. Not simply among the married. And the word that, that the ESV translates here is very illuminating. The word that the ESV translates as honor is the same word that's used in other settings in the New Testament to describe gems and jewels and gets translated in those contexts as precious. So that what the sentence, how the sentence reads literally is precious marriage among all. Now I just want you to think about this. I want you to think about the ways in which we are tempted to be cynical about marriage by our culture and our own hearts. And it shows up in, in settled resentments against our spouses. It shows up in the way that we joke about our spouses, in the way that we poke fun at wives and women and men and husbands. Our culture, uh, when is the last time you saw a strong father in film or on television? We get this from our culture. We don't get it from God. Marriage is to be held precious among all. So whether you are, are uh, married or unmarried, what is it that is going to keep you from uh, following our culture's counsel to engage in premarital sex? Because you are convinced by God's evaluation of marriage that it's precious. What's going to keep you and restrain you from our culture's uh, counsel to commit adultery? The conviction that God has said marriage is precious. And there's a second command here too, right? It's, it's let the marriage bed uh, be undefiled. God's designed boundaries for marriage and everyone is to observe them. The way you steward your own body, whether, you, whether you're going to be married or not. So what you look at on the computer, what you do with your body, friends, you are saying something about whether or not marriage is precious. And you are either defiling the marriage bed or not defiling it. You're either guarding it or you're leaving it exposed. Friends, it's a big deal. God takes it seriously. And it applies to everyone. So what God is, in summary, what God is calling us to do in Hebrews 13, 4 is exactly the same thing that Jesus is counseling the Pharisees and his disciples to do in Matthew 19, which is to join his jealousy for marriage. To join it. Now that raises another important pastoral question. Why is Jesus so jealous for marriage? Does it apply to everyone? Is everyone called to be reverent about marriage? Yes. Why? 
And I think the answer for that is, is in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 32, I just want to look at one, one verse. You guys know this verse, but I want us to have our eyeballs on it because it is, it's a staggerer. You know, Paul, uh, starting at verse 22 in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul goes through this long exposition of uh, the, the significance of the gospel in the relationship between a husband and a wife, okay? And he explains some amazing things, Okay. And when he, when he sums it all up, this is what he says, verse 32. This mystery, and he's referring in the immediate near context to uh, the same verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 19, Genesis 2.24, about, about the, the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus says, excuse me, Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers, that's Genesis 2.24 refers. That's the second page the Bible refers to Christ and the church. That's why Jesus is so jealous that we would embrace reverence, his reverence, that we would join his jealousy for marriage because of his marriage. You see, when the Pharisees come to him, friends, when they come to him in verse 3 of our passage and they say, hey, we, we effectively want you to rubber stamp the legitimacy of divorce. What they're doing, I just think about this. I mean, it's just, it's just so staggering that the Pharisees come and they, they're essentially wanting him to rubber stamp uh, an exit strategy from marriage. And they don't realize that they are talking to the one whose entire ministry is about an entrance strategy for marriage. They don't realize, we know this, right? We know this. So friends, we have to take what he says so much more seriously because the one that they are addressing, the one to whom they pose their question and the one who answers them back and also answers us back is the one who from all eternity had set his heart on getting married who had set his heart on entering a marriage, who had dedicated himself from before the foundation of the world to be covenantally bound to his bride and who was willing to enter this world in order to hunt her down and find her, to rescue her, to take her to himself, to do whatever was required in order to make her his. You want to know why you should be reverent for marriage? Because of Jesus' reverence for his own marriage. There were no limits to his reverence for marriage. He was willing to pay any price in his own body. What it meant for him to be one flesh with his bride, what it meant for him to be that, to be the fulfillment of Genesis 2.24, my friends, 
is exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees wanted to do. You see, the Pharisees found they were married, and they found in their bride a flaw or flaws, and they wanted those flaws in their bride to be an excuse, a justification for them to flee from their bride. But Jesus... See, they, what the Pharisees wanted was to protect themselves from their bride's flaws. You see how that's exactly the opposite of Jesus' heart? Because Jesus' whole ministry is, is about, yes, you have flaws, so I'm not going to flee from you. That's precisely why I'm going to fly towards you. It's exactly the opposite. And he exposes himself in that one flesh union on the cross to all of his bride's flaws and takes them off of her so that she might be freed. Friends, so that we might be freed. And in his body, on the cross, he experiences the fullness of that one flesh union with us, sharing not only our nature, but also our need. And we were going to be judged for our sin. We were going to be righteously judged by God for our rebellion against him. And those were our predicament. Those were our flaws, our eternal eternal peril. And Jesus, because of his great love that he had for his bride from before the foundation of the world, said, no, in order to protect you, I will be, I'll let myself be exposed to all those flaws and that judgment of God that is rightly coming upon them. Friends, this is the only marriage that death can't defeat. In fact, this is the only marriage that is actually consummated in death consummated by Jesus' death on the cross, consummated in your death as one who is in Christ when you go to him in glory. This is the only marriage which is not conditioned by the limitation till death do us part, because in this marriage, death cannot part us from him. That's why you and I need to be reverent about marriage. Secondly, providence and marriage. Now, that's the next prominent theme that's related to marriage in our Lord's teaching. And by providence, this is what I mean. I mean God's governing and guiding and sustaining, preserving power in marriage, apart from which no marriage will come into being and apart from which no marriage will continue into being. Will continue in being. And so what Jesus says in verse 26 to his disciples, again, about about a rich man's ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I believe that it's just as true in this scenario as well. With, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And unless and until we need to feel, friends, not only reverence for marriage, but we need to face the truth that what God's calling is in marriage is impossible. It is impossible unless he builds that marriage, unless he calls you into that marriage unless he sustains that marriage. If you think that marriage, as God ordains it, is within the range of your capabilities as a person, you are not paying attention to yourself or God's vision. And until you are gripped by the sheer impossibility 
of marriage for men. You will never be within reach of what God's divine possibilities are through marriage. So let's think about this in two parts. God's providence in the making of a marriage, what Jesus shows us about that, and then also God's providence in the breaking of a marriage. So the making of a marriage, verses 5 and 6. We, we sort of touched on this under the first point, but we need to drill down more deeply right now. Now I want you to notice that when Jesus is talking about marriage in verses 5 and 6, he narrates, uh, he narrates the story of a marriage on two levels. There's the human level, okay? And when he quotes from Genesis 2.24, um, he, he tells us about the human level. And what happens, you know, this is just a summary. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's what, that's what it looks like on a human level. And that's really, the, that's really the level most of us think about. And it's a true level. And it's a beautiful story. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. It's wonderful. But it's not the whole story. There's a much bigger story that that story is a part of. Marriage is a much bigger story than meets the naked eye. Look at verse 6. So, this is a deduction now. So, they are no longer two, but one, one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, there's the second level. There's what man does, and then there's what God does. Now, you've got to, you've got to understand that when, when the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God, it never talks about the sovereignty of God in a way that eliminates human responsibility. So don't, don't think you've caught me in a contradiction, because it's not going to work, friends. Because the Bible it does, it doesn't, isn't struggling with this. The foundation for human responsibility is divine sovereignty. What makes you responsible is the fact that God's sovereign. Okay? I mean, read Genesis 24. You know what the longest chapter in the book of Genesis is? It's Genesis 24. What's Genesis 24, you say? Well, Genesis 24 is the chapter that describes Abraham's charge to his servant to go get a wife for Isaac. It's the longest chapter in Genesis. Why? Because it's utterly critical for the fulfillment of God's promise that Isaac not only be born, but that Isaac have a family. This is utterly critical that Isaac have a bride who will be jealous for the covenant that has been entrusted to him through Abraham. And what happens in that chapter, if you're a single person, I really encourage you to read this chapter, particularly if you're a man. Because the servant, Abraham's servant, is just a master student of the relationship between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. He takes action. He takes initiative. He does things. Abraham sends him, so Abraham is exactly the same. He takes initiative, but he waits on God's sovereignty. But he doesn't, he doesn't twiddle his thumbs and say, well, if God, and notice Abraham doesn't do this either. Well, if God's going to bring Isaac a wife, I guess she'll just fall out of the sky. Oh, my goodness. He makes his servant travel hundreds of miles to go get a bride. And the servant doesn't just say, well, 
I'm just going to wait around until somebody asks me if they can marry Isaac. What? Take action. Trust God. Because there's a story here that, that, that God is telling in every marriage, Jesus says. It's amazing that God brings, beneath everything that man does, God brings the couple together. Brings the couple together. He's telling the story. He's joining them together. Friends, we need to take our marriages a lot more seriously. You know, you want to check out of your marriage? You want to, um, you, you want to feel sorry for yourself because of your marriage? How would those things change if you were deeply convinced that it wasn't you ultimately who joined you to your spouse, but God. I think that would give you more peace. I think it would give you more hope. I think it would correct a whole lot of things that are probably not holy in your heart. Now, I want you to think with me about the standard marriage vows. Let's just, let's just try to illustrate this because we try, to, we try to operationalize this in wedding vows. At least in every, in every wedding I officiate, there's always traditional vows, okay? Uh, don't write your own vows with me, okay? It's not gonna, we're not going to have a good discussion if you try to do that because the traditional vows are so good. But I want you to think about them. They're, they're really staggering, and normally there's three related pairings that we work through in the vows that you say. Vows you make, right? And I want you to think about the wide range in God's providence, how wide the arc of the pendulum of God's providence is between these extremes, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want in joy and in sorrow. There's a sunny side of those vows and there's a shadow side of those vows. And when a couple stands in a, in a marriage covenant ceremony, they are acknowledging their total ignorance. You are saying, I don't know whether in the providence of God, we're going to have sickness, we're going to have want, and we're going to have sorrow. I don't know what he's going to bring us. I don't know whether he's going to bring us in his sovereignty health, plenty, and joy. But even in the face of my ignorance, I am still making this promise in such a way that the promise will be stronger than either one of the poles of God's providence and the promise is going to survive whether there is sickness and sorrow and plenty or whether there is uh, sickness, sorrow, want, sorry, or whether there is plenty and health and joy. Because my ignorance is not a barrier when God's omniscience is behind the bond that he is establishing between a husband and a wife. 
You see, if God has joined them together, my friends, then his omniscience is our guarantee. And the promise must be kept. Fear not. It's a tremendously courageous thing to say. And not only are you, are you ignorant, you're woefully, you're totally ignorant. Do you see that when you make those promises? We don't know. And, the, and, the, and the, the breadth between those sides of God's providence is massive. Do you know why most marriages break up? Because sickness comes in. Because want comes in. And because of sorrow. But I want to say, you promised That's what I want to say. And more than that, God joined you together. Of course you're totally impotent. Of course there's no way you can keep promises like that. That's just too big. Are you not persuaded yet that that is humanly impossible? It is. So the only way you can do it, but don't fear, right? Because it's not your strength that is the ground of that covenant. If God is the one who's joined you together, and cast yourself on his omnipotence. And you will find him faithful. I am not saying it's going to be easy, but you will find him faithful. But what about those of you? And there are so many of you. I thought about you all week. What about those of you who are walking on this side, the far side of being betrayed in marriage and having the marriage covenant broken, having the vows not kept. What, what about God's providence in your life? You know, even in a congregation our size, there's so much pain. It, it, is, it is staggering to me sometimes. When I think about just this small collection of people, how much hurt you have endured. But I have hope for you because the same providence that keeps marriage covenants will keep you when you've been betrayed. God's good and omnipotent hand that guides and provides for you. The same idea, there's a deeper story, there's a better story, just as there's a deeper story in the making of marriage that is formed by God's providence, so there's a deeper and a better story for you, even in the breaking, even in the aftermath of the breaking of your marriage. And my unmarried friends who've never been married, I really want you to pay attention to this. I need you to pay attention. You, you know, if you, you want to be married, as you dream and you think and you imagine about getting married, you need to be very sober. Sober not in the sense that you have low expectations for marriage, but sober in the sense that, that you are driven to know God as deeply and as fully as you possibly can because life is hard. And he alone is your refuge. 
So know God. Spend yourself to know God. You know, when I was in, I was a junior in college, and I was whining to my college pastor about being single. I was a junior in college. What was the matter with me? And he was quite. He had become quite an expert at listening to my whining about all manner of subject. He said to me, he said, Francis, you know something. You're thinking about your singleness wrong. What if you thought about your singleness as an opportunity that God had given to you to grow into a man after his own heart? On Monday morning, I was uh, doing my devotions and the first thing, I'm sorry, I've got a crush on Genesis this week. I apologize, okay? Boy, big crush on Genesis. I need a hobby. And I was in Genesis 21. Why don't you turn with me there? I was just swept off my feet by Genesis 21, which is the account of, of Isaac's, uh, Sarah's pregnancy and Isaac's birth. And uh, yeah, let's just, let's just read down to verse 6, okay? The Lord visited Sarah excuse me, as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. You see how the text is just emphasizing God's faithfulness, that that what seemed outlandish and unbelievable, God brought to pass. God did it, Which Sarah, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, who means he laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah was 90. And notice what Sarah says. This just it made me fall out of my chair almost. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Now, you know, at this point, I started thinking, Sarah's 90 years old. And so she's got eight, about eight decades, most of eight decades behind her of infertility, of sadness, of disappointment, and of reproaches. Because to, to not have a, not, to be infertile in that culture is, was bad. Look like God's curse on you. Now, I want you to think about that. Most of eight decades, that was the soil of her life. And look, look at the harvest of joy that God is able to bring out from that painful soil so that she says, he has made laughter for me. See, now she understood that through all those tears and all that reproach and all that disappointment, decade after decade, and all that grief, all that feeling like she was cursed, that what was actually happening, that the story, the real story, was that God was bringing her into laughter. Friends, Jesus Christ 
is doing the same thing in your life. He wants to give you exactly the same testimony. Isn't that what God is doing in all of history? Right? Sin enters the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and God immediately says, I'm going to bring laughter out of this. I'm going to defeat the serpent and bring them, my people, into a kingdom to be with me forever. Isn't that what God is doing in history? Isn't that what Romans 8.28 is saying? That God is going to bring us into laughter? That God is going to triumph over everything? Everything that, that is the source of great sorrow and grief in our lives. That, friends, the, the universe is not a tragedy. The universe is a comedy. Not in the sense that it's funny, but in the sense that things resolve. Because God is the resolver. You know, I was thinking about Lord of the Rings, like I do on most days. I was thinking about Lord of the Rings this, this past week and thinking about how, how there's so much darkness in those stories. There's so much loss in those stories. There's a lot of evil in those stories. And yet, it's interesting. When you finish the story, there's joy. And none of us would say to J.R.R. Tolkien, you know what? The story was not worth all that darkness. The story was not worth all that loss. It wasn't worth it. We would never say that to J.R.R. Tolkien because it wouldn't be true. When we finish that story, we say it was worth it. Now, friends, God is a much more adept storyteller and story writer and author than J.R. Tolkien. Would you not agree? And so, friends, you, where, if you're on the side of a broken marriage covenant, you need to rest in the providence of God. You need to exalt in the goodness of God's providence that he is bringing laughter. He's going to bring you all the way into laughter. You are going to bless him one day for every wound. And you know what your guarantee of that is? What's behind me? That's the guarantee because, you know, the darkest event in the history of the universe was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet we're told in Hebrews 12, 2, that what Jesus' hope was, right, there, he knew there was going to be laughter on the other side of that cross. He knew there would be triumph for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And because he did that, friends, you and I can have hope. Do you know what? Your vow, let's say perhaps your marriage vows are broken. You know what? Jesus kept every one of his marriage vows to you. When he was faced with a choice between his plenty and your want, he chose your want. When he was faced with the choice between your sickness and his health, he said, give me their sickness. Let me bear their infirmities in my body on the cross. When he was faced with the choice between his joy and your sorrow, you know what he said? He said, I'll take their sorrow. I'll be the man of sorrows in their place. He kept his vows to the end, to the most bitter end there could ever be when he was totally isolated. He's the only promise keeper in the history of the universe and yet he suffered alone in his body on the tree uh, for all the broken promises that have ever been broken. That's what stands underneath you. That's what's going to keep you. 
Our last point is maybe the biggest one. It's not the longest one, but it may be the biggest one. Forgiveness in marriage. Nothing is harder in marriage. Nothing is more beautiful in marriage. And nothing is more urgent for the unmarried and the married to both understand about marriage. Now, we're going to touch on this more next week. But where's the theme of forgiveness in our passage? Well, I'll tell you where it is. You remember when, uh, when chapter 18 ended, Jesus uh, just, has just finished this long, we did this a number of weeks ago, before, right before Advent. There's, a, there's an exchange that Jesus has with Peter, and Peter says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Do you remember that? And uh, Peter says, seven times? You know, he's hoping that Jesus will pat him on the back and say, that's really good, Peter. Jesus says, no, I tell you 70 times seven, which essentially means unlimited forgiveness for his brother. And now it's very interesting that the very next, the very next episode is Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, hey, uh, can we get divorced? Now, Peter's question was about forgiveness in a pretty significant relational uh, bond, right? Brother to brother. But the Pharisees are now asking him about really a question that raises, raises the whole issue of the failure of forgiveness in the most intimate of all human relationships in marriage. That's what they're asking when they ask about divorce. Is there a justification for the failure of forgiveness in that relationship? Now, you know, about 10 years ago, I was involved in a, uh, a judicial commission for our presbytery. One of the teaching elders, one of the teaching elders in our presbytery, who was a professor, one of my professors at seminary, had uh, just very suddenly uh, filed for divorce against his wife. This was one of my professors who actually taught me the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, a group of teaching elders was then appointed by the presbytery, and we were uh, required uh, to look into uh, the circumstances surrounding the divorce. And he did not have biblical grounds for the divorce. And when we asked him what the explanation was for his uh, decision to uh, file for divorce from his wife, here's what he said. Something had happened in the early years of their marriage that he considered to be a breach of the marriage covenant. Now, by this point, they've been married 30-plus years, okay, by the time he's filed for divorce. So this happened in year two or three of the marriage. And what happened is that he took that thing, and he put it in his pocket, and he kept it. And he held on to it. And when the time was right, he pulled it out 30 years later and said, yeah, now I want out. Now, friends, I'm telling you that not to cast aspersions on him. I'm telling you that to warn myself and you. Because if forgiveness has great power in marriage, and it does, unforgiveness has great power. It's like acid. And there may be things in your marriage this very day 
that have just accumulated and you've kept there and they're buried and you put them in the pocket. You've never really forgiven your spouse. Look at the way you argue. How easy is it for how long does it take you in your argument for something before this moment to come up and be used as a cudgel in your argument with your spouse? You know what that is? That's unforgiveness. This is very dangerous. Everything that is important and valuable always comes with peril. So if you don't, if you don't embrace forgiveness, unlimited forgiveness in your marriage, beware of the peril that will flow from it. No human relationship presents the same amount, you know, in, in, in marriage, the need for forgiveness, the opportunities for forgiveness, the imperatives uh, for forgiveness are at their maximum. You need to take this seriously. And my unmarried friends, you need to have your eyes open about this. This is going to be hard. When you get married, you know what? This is amazing. When you get married, uh, 100% of people who get married marry a serial sinner. And you know what? Here's the most amazing coincidence of all. The serial sinner that you marry also marries a serial sinner. Now, what are the odds of that? And we laugh about that, but you know, friends, that has important implications. This is not a game. What that means, well, first thing it means is God didn't make a mistake. You need your spouse's forgiveness, and your spouse needs your forgiveness. And this is not a flaw in God's design. It is the genius of his design. It is a beautiful thing. This is why, and it's also impossible This is why God joins men and women together in marriage, to do the impossible. Unlimited forgiveness for somebody you live with in close contact who's going to fail you like no one else has failed you. Unlimited forgiveness for somebody who... who's going to know or unlimited forgiveness from somebody who's going to know the darkest things about you and is going to be the res- on the receiving end of your greatest failures. There is great opportunity and there is great peril there. It is a sacred place. It is a beautiful place. It is a place that is impossible for men, but possible for God. When a married couple stands, right? See, see, because and the reason what makes it possible is that Jesus Christ did the impossible for us, right? When a, when, a, when a husband and wife are gripped by the reality that God in Jesus Christ has done the impossible for them, a holy God totally forgive and reconcile sinners to himself through the incarnation and the, and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son of God, that's impossible. And when a married couple is gripped by the wonder of that and stands together by faith at the, you know, beneath this waterfall of God's mercy that has come down upon them because Jesus Christ stood alone under a torrential downpour of God's wrath. He did that for us. 
to open up the floodgates of mercy. When a, when a Christian couple stands there under that waterfall, you know what? You're constantly being drenched by that discovery of the gospel over and over and over again. You know what? If you need to hand a cup of water of forgiveness to your spouse, there's plenty of water there. You can fill that cup up again and again and again and again. There's hope for the marriage that isn't coming from within the marriage. It's coming into the marriage because of the gospel. And if you stand there, there are a couple of things you're going to learn over and over and over again. The first is the relative scales of what you have been forgiven by God and what you are being called by God to forgive in your spouse. Friends, it's the relationship. You, it's like Mount, I was trying to think of this. It's like Mount Everest. You're dead to God, totally forgiven, gone. Can you imagine standing in front of Mount Everest and poof, it's gone. And then when that happens, going, oh, there's this grain of sand on my shoulder. Why in the world would I ever, when God's removed a mountain, why would I spend a lot of time worrying about that grain of sand? What God has forgiven you, my friend, is far greater than what you are being called by God to forgive in your spouse. There's that. You need to remember that. But unless you stand at the foot of the cross, you're not going to think that. You're going to stand on some high horse pedestal, and you're going to look down at your spouse and say, ho, ho, ho. You stand together at the foot of the cross. You'll know that you're under God's mercy, and that will change you. But the second thing you're going to learn when you stand at the foot of the cross that is very important to know and remember whether you're married or unmarried right now, is that there are some things about your spouse, the hardest things, perhaps, and some things about you, the hardest things, perhaps, that aren't going to get better in this life. Might be minor changes, but there are some limps, some of the hardest things about your spouse and some of the hardest things about you will not be healed in this life. Do you believe that? I hope you do, because that's the truth. And that's not because the gospel isn't powerful. No, 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 no. It's because we need a new world. And Jesus is bringing it. There are some limps that can't be healed in this world, that won't be healed until we live in a new world. And you need to have that mindset as you stand beneath the world, beneath that waterfall of God's mercy. You need to strain forward in hope. The gospel makes the impossible possible. And what's supposed to happen in marriage is that two sinners, and this is impossible for men, right? Two sinners stand as allies together and they are guarding each other for that great future by sharing they're journeying together and they're guarding each other for that great future this is the ministry God has entrusted to husbands and wives guarding each other uh, for that great future by sharing the riches of the forgiveness that they've received friends that's a vision for marriage that God gives us that their culture is not going to teach you what our culture has to say about marriage is not worth your time. But what God has to say about it is, it's worth your life. With man, this is impossible, but with God, 
all things are possible. Let's pray. Teach us this reverence, Lord Jesus, that you have to share your jealousy. Teach us to trust in the goodness of your providence and teach us what it means to forgive as we have been forgiven. We pray in your name.